0: podcast of the New York Academy of Sciences Inspiring Centuries of Progress This is the 4th episode of Dementia Decoded a special 5 part series presented by the Academy's Alzheimer's Disease and Dementia Initiative with the generous support of the Dana Foundation Episode 4 Fighting Forgetting Over the course of the last 2 episodes we looked at the medical treatment of Alzheimer's disease how doctors are trying to fight the mechanisms of the disease and its symptoms on a biochemical level. This is a crucial issue, but it's intertwined with another that's just as complex and important. While we're spending the next years or even decades that it will require to find a cure or a home-run cocktail of symptomatic treatments, there will be tens of millions of people living with this disease. A disease that gradually takes away their ability to care for themselves. And so someone is going to have to care for them. Just on a financial level, this is a problem that the world is really starting to notice. Here's Phil Hope, former member of the British Parliament and UK Minister for Care Services, who now runs a consultancy and lobbying group called Improving Care
1: indeed it's the social care costs and the cost of accommodation and supportive accommodation and residential care accommodation that is often much higher than the clinical medical costs of dementia. And that's that's why this is such a, a difficult condition to, to, to address. Global cost $604 billion uh, in 2010 um, it's estimated in the United States alone it will rise to over a trillion uh, dollars um, by 2050 Treasury ministers Prime Ministers, Health Ministers have woken up to this fact and are now saying we need to have a strategy in every country, we need to have a pan country strategy in different regions addressing a particular nature of the, the the demographic changes and the and the health prevalence changes that are going on in those in those different nations.
0: And these numbers are only going to increase.
1: The numbers of people in an aging population that will find themselves in this condition is is only set to grow. Nobody has got any projections of this uh, going backwards. uh, In terms of numbers, it's always going to increase.
0: Here's Robin Desell, Director of Memory Care Services at the Hebrew Home in Riverdale, one of the largest senior care facilities in New York City.
2: Baby boomers are not all going to be able to live at home successfully. They're weller they're more physically able, they are possibly going to live longer, and with Alzheimer's disease, we know that age is the foremost contributing factor. They're going to need health care. They're going to require health care settings, and we need to be prepared and planful.
0: And compared with even terrible, debilitating conditions like cancer, People with neurodegenerative dementia are particularly difficult to care for. It comes with a set of symptoms that are hard to understand, difficult to manage, and go far beyond the memory problems that we most typically associate with the disease. Here's Ruth Drew, National Director of Family and Information Services for the Alzheimer's Association, followed by Dr. Tetsuyuki Maruyama, Senior Vice President and General Manager of the Research Division of Takeda Pharmaceuticals.
3: It's different from some other things that people need care for. You know, if someone's in a wheelchair, well, that's so visible, whereas uh, disease of the brain doesn't necessarily show on the outside. And so uh, what we see are symptoms that include changes in behavior, or changes in communication, in mood, those kinds of things. And those aren't always, knowing how to deal with that may not be instinctive.
4: We talk about the focus on uh, memory, And certainly, if you ask most people who have heard of Alzheimer's or dementia what it is, they'd say, well, it's a forgetting disease. Um, And that certainly is true. But as Alzheimer's disease progresses, other symptoms come into play as well. Changes in emotion, in mood, in aggressiveness, in what we call executive function, the ability to think or plan for the future. And in fact, um, most patients who are committed into full-time care by the family it's not to do with their forgetting it's to do with some of these other behavioral
0: symptoms and so there are very poor really no treatments available for that some of these behavioral symptoms can become so severe that clinicians are forced to resort to treatments designed for people who were suffering from psychosis despite the fact that the fda has strongly warned of the potential dangers of doing so here's Dr. Jason Karlowish, a professor of medicine at the University of Pennsylvania.
5: I think the data on antipsychotics are a very mixed picture. And yet it's interesting, on the very day that uh, FDA issued its uh, uh, what they call black box warning for antipsychotics and Alzheimer's disease, that very day I actually wrote a prescription, I remember, for a patient for one of those antipsychotics because she was so psychotic that every effort we had to try and address her psychosis was a failure and we finally had to turn to these medications.
0: And so, we have a huge and constantly growing population of people suffering from a long, degenerative condition that leaves them completely unable to care for themselves and in a state of profound mental confusion, which they sometimes react to in a way that looks a lot like violent psychosis. Now here's the bad news. The way we've built our healthcare infrastructure is almost specifically ill-equipped for handling this situation. It's a system that's designed to efficiently deliver specific targeted interventions. The MRI that finds a malignancy, the surgery that removes it, the antibiotic that prevents infection, and then the physical therapy that restores normal function to that part of the body. This is great if that's the kind of problem you have, but navigating that surface to put together a care plan for someone with dementia can often be frustrating and confusing to the point of madness. Not to mention, ruinously expensive. Here's Mr. Hope.
1: We have a health service designed for a time when people had acute conditions um, and it's the wrong-shaped service.
0: This problem is compounded by the fact that the central point of delivery for most healthcare in our system, the hospital, really couldn't be a worse environment for someone with dementia. It's noisy, impersonal, uncomfortable, subject to bizarre rules and schedules, and filled with pushy strangers who are interacting with you in disturbingly intimate ways. The kind of place where someone who already feels like they're losing their sense of self, their sense of reality in a lot of ways, is not going to find much to hang on to. Here's Ms. DeSalle.
2: If anyone has ever had the experience of being in a hospital, you know for a period of time and I certainly have it is a very infantilizing experience you're fully exposed if you will at that point you want nothing more than to regain that sense of of self that sensibility that tells you I have a say in this I'm still here
0: and the truth is then until recently, nursing care facilities were designed to look and function much like hospitals. We'll see later in this episode that that's changing rapidly and very much for the better, but it hasn't changed everywhere, and perceptions of places change very slowly. And so the majority of people with dementia end up being cared for, at least for some amount of time, in their home by a volunteer amateur, usually a member of their family. Here's dr. Dina Davis, endowed Chair of Health and Professor of Bioethics at Lehigh University in Pennsylvania
6: it's, uh, it's an issue of practicality you know you know where are we going to get the money, what um, nursing homes and other kinds of things cost and how difficult it is for people to pay for that, and the logistics of getting Medicaid to pay for that, which are very complicated. so um, a very large percentage of care is given by what is called informal caregivers. And that's a word that irritates the hell out of me, frankly, because what informal means is unpaid.
0: There's really a whole separate worldwide healthcare system of these informal caregivers. Their numbers and the value to society of the services they're providing is really astonishing. Here's Greg Johnson, Director of Community Outreach and creator of the Care for the Family Caregiver Program for the insurance company Emblem Health.
7: Just to put it in perspective, here in 2014 statistically, there are 65.7 million family caregivers in America, taking people to hospitals, taking people and making food, doing the laundry, taking care of paying bills, all of those sorts of services, the value of their services, and remember, they are not paid, but the monetized value that caregivers are donating to the American economy is $522 billion US billion. And that newest study was just released a couple weeks ago and this
0: is not just an American phenomenon the numbers are similar worldwide here's mr. hope
1: I mean just the the figures in the UK are if everybody who was an unpaid carer um, a daughter looking after a mother a a wife looking after a husband uh, were paid the minimum hourly wage that would cost over a hundred billion pounds we have in effect a complete health service we spend about 100 billion pounds on the health service uh, in the uk we have a parallel health service a completely unpaid health service if i can frame it in that way uh, going on as we speak
0: to really understand the economic impact of all of this though you also have to keep in mind that the people who are now taking care of a loved one full time are doing that instead of whatever career they had before here's dr luke troyan Vice President of Neurology External Affairs for Janssen R&D and Chair of Johnson & Johnson's Global Fight Against Alzheimer's Disease.
8: That's one of the, uh, let's say, more hidden costs of Alzheimer's is the loss of productivity of the caregivers. Um, And uh, we are actually uh, running a number of economic studies where we're going to try to model that such that the debate can be moved from just the health ministers in countries to the finance and treasury ministers in countries to say if we don't address Alzheimer's in fact your ability to generate your GDP is going to be impacted your productivity will go down because um, evidently the family wants to take care of their uh, father mother suffering but that means they cannot be part of the productive process so how do we start recompensing so that you, you find a balance there will be if you don't address the actual Uh, of Alzheimer's, it will be an increased burden, but I think we can redistribute some of that burden uh, more broadly so that we kind of equalize that more. We should pause here and think about that statement,
0: that people are deciding to care for family members because they want to. It'd be hard to argue that people want their family members to be cared for, but it's also safe to say that people are almost always ambivalent about putting themselves into that role. Like we said, it means putting your own career on hold for a period of several years. And that's a period of steady, inevitable decline. No one gets better in the long run, only worse. Here's Ms. Drew, followed by Dr. Davis.
3: It is a neurodegenerative disease. It does not currently have a cure. It is something that that is progressive and can go on for many years. maybe 3 to 8 years for might be more fairly typical but up to 20 plus years the need for care the, the help that a person needs just increases and intensifies along the way as the disease progresses it's not
6: binary it's not like you know one minute somebody was fine You know, and the next minute they're in a persistent vegetative state like, you know, Nancy Cruzan or something. We have a long period of time in which people are competent to do some things but not others.
0: So this means a constant reassessment of what kind of help the person you're caring for needs. Not an easy conversation to have once, let alone over and over again.
6: So it keeps having to be negotiated um, and it becomes extraordinarily difficult. It might be one point for the checking account and one point for the car keys and another point for saying, Mom, you simply have to get a cleaning woman. You know, um, you know all kinds of, of things um, might have to be negotiated one by one by one. And it can be somewhat excruciating, actually.
0: And it's a cruel irony of this disease that one of the first mental capacities it attacks is the ability to make good decisions. So a caregiver is often put in the position of having to make very difficult choices about things like treatment options without any help at all from the person they're caring for. Often direct hindrance from that person, and often much earlier in the course of the disease than they would expect. Here's Dr. Carlowish again.
5: Alzheimer's disease, like other neurodegenerative diseases, uh, causes individuals to slowly lose their ability to think and decide. And it's a feature of the disease which can be seen very early on even. In fact, some of the hallmark symptoms of the disease are, are troubles-making decisions. Therefore, for example, their decision not to take a treatment um, that you're prescribing is a decision that you may arrive after you assess their capacity that they actually can't make. And so you have to turn to someone else to say, you know, I want, I need your help here to decide whether or not we're going to give this treatment to your husband, wife, mother, father, etc. And that happens early in the course of the disease. It's only later in the disease that you have some of the classic functional problems that people often equate with the disease, like difficulties dressing, bathing, grooming, and feeding, and toileting. Um, one must generally live through about a good five or six years of the disease before you arrive at those problems.
0: And so what is to be done? Well, the first thing to realize if you find yourself in the position of caring for a loved one with dementia is that you are not alone. There are literally millions of other people in the same predicament. And there really are a lot of services out there to help you if you know where to look. More and more hospitals are opening up memory centers. More and more insurance companies are offering caregiver services. Many churches and community groups offer respite for caregivers. And services like hospice can prove invaluable. The Alzheimer's Association, which has branches in dozens of cities around the country, can be a great place to start. And often you have to begin with planning. Putting your emotions aside as much as you can and making a level-headed long-term assessment of what you're going to need. Here's Ms. Drew.
3: Planning is a big part of it. And if if you don't work in the healthcare or long-term care industry, how would you know what options are available? So that's why calling the Alzheimer's Association helpline at 800 272 3900, working with one of our 70 plus local chapters, getting informed early gives us the opportunity to share, here are the various options that are available to you, and gives the individual the opportunity to make a good plan. What we find when people plan ahead is that that's when they have the most choices. And so when people plan ahead, they feel like they're more in control of things. They have the most choices. And they are the least likely to find themselves in a crisis situation where they have very few choices at all.
0: A lot of this planning is going to involve paperwork. There are a number of legal issues that are much easier to handle if they're tackled as early as possible in this process, before the care recipient can no longer participate in the conversation. The same is true for everyone's finances. Putting them in order early is going to avert a lot of difficulties in the long run. Here's Llewellyn Barkin, president and CEO of the Alzheimer's Association's New York City chapter.
9: Very often when someone is diagnosed, even in the early stage of the disease, they are dealing with a progressive long-term or short-term illness. And they really need to think about what condition are their finances in? And what legal support? Is there a power of attorney? Is there an advanced directive? Is there a healthcare proxy? If those documents exist, is everybody who needs to know, do they know where they are? And are they signed properly? That's a very simple, early thinking can make a tremendous difference later on. You know, we have families who overlook some of these things, come to us much later in the cycle of the disease, and they don't have any of these documents, and decisions that could have been made easily early on are no longer possible.
0: The other important thing for a caregiver to remember is that, as important as it is to care for the person with dementia, it's equally important that you care for yourself it's going to be a long, difficult road. And if you're not keeping yourself healthy, you're not going to be able to help someone else.
9: Very often caregivers come here and they're exhausted and they're stressed and they haven't been exercised, and they haven't been eating correctly, and they're, they don't get—they never get a day off, and they're afraid to leave somebody by themselves. And we say, all right, stop. You know, We need to figure out a way for you to get some relief as well. Support groups, for example, are, are the core program here. We have about 130 support groups throughout New York. We do them in Spanish, English, and Chinese. We have caregivers who come and say, but I'm very private. I don't really want to talk about what's happening in my family with anybody else. The first people who have been through support groups who will use those as a resource have come and said, that was the most important thing I ever did, was to be able to sit in a room with you know, eight or ten other individuals who are going through this, share ideas, talk about what I'm dealing with, with people who really understand.
0: These can seem like tremendously personal, even embarrassing problems, but opening up and being honest about your needs to family, your neighbors, your friends, can sometimes yield help that you didn't even know was out there to ask for. Here's Ms. Barkin again, followed by Mr. Johnson.
9: So what we tell people all the time is that, you know, maybe it's something you've got to figure out what makes you feel good. Maybe it's a walk every day. You know, is there a neighbor that can stop by? We just spoke to one family I did this week where the someone who has this problem and is very severely demented one of the neighbors that this gentleman has come over and said, you know, I can sit with him for a couple of hours every day. In fact, you know what, I'll stay with him Mondays and Thursdays. We'll watch some TV together, we'll talk a little bit, and you go out and do whatever you need to do. And when the caregiver called me, she said, you can't imagine what that meant to me, to have that kind of relief. It
7: certainly ameliorates the tension of repeating and answering the same question 25 times. Because the person isn't, going to, isn't hearing you. That's that's talking to the disease. And who's the one who gets frustrated is us, the caregiver. So the way to help us to help the other person, quite frankly, is by helping us. There's only one rule to family caregiving. Before I can care for you, i got to care for myself. I can't give away what I don't have.
0: It's important, too, to recognize that caring for someone with a degenerative and ultimately fatal disease is going to be an emotionally draining experience. It's going to force you to face some really difficult questions about your relationship with the person you're caring for, about your priorities in life, and about your own mortality. There's a spiritual and philosophical aspect to it, and bracing yourself for that can be just as important as planning all the logistics involved here's Mr. Johnson again, who it's worth mentioning as well as running caregiver services for a health insurance company, is also a practicing minister.
7: It's not what happens to us in life that matters. Because by the time it happens, it's history. It's happened. I mean, it's very unfortunate. I'm very sad for me. It's happened. That's the reality. The only thing we can do is how do we react to it? How do we relate to it? Yes, it's going to change our lives. Yes, we're going to go deeper. Yes, we may change our opinions. Yes, we may do things differently. Not to beat up, but it's to grow. I always like to remind people that with family caregiving, you cannot pay it away, pray it away, or prescribe it away. You do need all three. There's no question about that. But ultimately, you need to go through it. And it's my most sincere prayer that you grow through it. Because if you don't, it's going to be very difficult.
0: There also often comes a time where keeping a loved one at home no longer seems like the right choice. As we've heard, the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease get quite severe as it progresses. Preventing someone from being able to feed themselves, wash themselves, go to the bathroom by themselves. Preventing them eventually from being able to recognize their surroundings, or even to speak. And it can absolutely get to the point that it's beyond what an amateur can handle. And even long before that point, staying at home can be lonely. Often quite early in the disease, people with dementia who could still go out and interact with people stop doing so, for a variety of reasons. Here's Karishma Chandaria, Program Manager for Dementia-Friendly Communities at the Alzheimer's Society of the UK
10: one of the things that we know from our research is around fear and stigma. So once somebody has a diagnosis of dementia, what tends to happen is that they lose contact with friends and family, um, either because friends and family don't really understand what dementia is and changes in behavior may be challenging. So they withdraw. Um, but there's also the stigma attached from going out into public places. So for example, you might stop going to the local shop or, um, the local cafe, um, because you feel embarrassed that you can't remember a person's name or you can't remember the correct change when you're buying something or you get lost or confused. Um, So that can lead to situations which then may escalate.
0: Residential facilities are often seen as a place where people with dementia are being kept away from the world and prevented from interacting with people. But the truth can often be the opposite. It's a place where people with dementia are free to socialize and interact with each other and with a team of professionals who know how to interact with them in a supportive way. And that can be very much preferable to sitting at home alone. Here's Ms. DeSell.
2: There are certain thresholds, and I'm talking now about the welfare of that older adult, when they're no longer able to live with either safety or pleasure, or experience a meaningful lifestyle at home, and they become virtual prisoners in their home because they can't access the outdoors. Their network of friends and family has diminished. We're losing a huge piece of their social worth. And while others would look at, and maybe society at large, to a great extent, would look at coming into residential care as the end of the story, it isn't. It's not the end of the story. Yes, these may be the last chapters in life, but you're afforded so many opportunities in coming into a community of older adults who are your peers. The activity that surrounds you and the world that's moving around you versus being in a more sedentary place at home There are advantages, and I have watched over 25 years, I have watched older adults flourish in this setting, and family members say that they've witnessed their loved one come alive again. By being in this setting, residential care is not the enemy. It's not the enemy, and it's not a dark place.
0: To be fair, how dark a place a residential care facility is can vary a lot from one to the next. But while there are unfortunately still many that follow the old model, there are also now more and more around the country and around the world that are taking an entirely different approach. A lot of this has to do with a philosophical change in the way people in care are thinking about people with dementia and what they're capable of.
2: Decades back, Alzheimer's disease was a label. It was as though you had that scarlet letter, that A, which I think brought about fear and shame and uh, just a host of negative associations. I think now we've come to a more enlightened place in trying to advance practice. Coming away from a disease, and looking at the person carrying the condition.
0: A hospital, or a clinic, is set up to maximize the efficiency of delivering medical treatments. The rooms are designed around being able to move equipment in and out quickly, and the daily schedule is set up to maximize the convenience and time management of the staff, not necessarily the comfort of the patients. This makes sense for a place for treating acute conditions. Let's get that treatment delivered, and the person up and out as quickly as possible. But it doesn't necessarily make for a nice place to live. A lot of the new way of thinking about long-term care for people with dementia comes down to what looks like common sense. Comfortable rooms filled with familiar things, a more normal daily schedule, and inviting common areas where people can meet and socialize. Areas that feel like a room in a home, not like a lobby in an institution. There's some very specific science behind this, though. It turns out that people keep a kind of subconscious memory of objects and spaces even after they've lost the ones they can consciously recall. And so if someone walks into a room that's recognizably set up like a living room, they'll feel comfortable there and know it's a place where they're supposed to sit down, read a book, watch television, even if it's past the time when they'd be able to say, oh, this is a living room. Here's Dr. John Zeisel, president and CEO of Hearthstone Alzheimer Care, which runs residential facilities in New York and Massachusetts.
11: We have a, a living room. We have a dining room. They are designed in a way with, with, with indicators in the physical environment to indicate how people are supposed to behave. So in the dining room, there are tables. You sit there, there's a little kitchen. You can see where the food is or where the refrigerator is. So everything around it says, this is where you are going to eat have tea, have coffee, etc. So they know when they're there what they're supposed to be doing. In other words, there are behavioral cues in the environment to indicate you know, what's expected in those places.
0: A similar kind of thinking can be put into how the hallways between places are designed. By providing distinctive visual landmarks, a person can create a kind of internal map of a building, which allows them to find their way around even when they could perhaps no longer consciously explain how to get there.
11: It's called natural mapping. All places where you walk should need a destination that can be seen. In a corridor that's 150 feet long, you might see 20 things on the wall. Each of those things is a mini destination, is a landmark. Our brains are made to use landmarks to find our way. So by providing many, many landmarks, the people with dementia always know where they are.
0: Seemingly small things like this can make a huge difference in how much help someone needs to get through the day, and therefore a huge difference in how other people see them and how they see
11: themselves. If I give you a destination that's meaningful, because music is being played or some food food is being served at the end of the hallway, not only does the person not wander, but rather they walk, but in addition, they walk with intent, because... It's meaningful where they're going, and they know where they're going. If they walk with intent and their partners are there, their care partners and other people, they're seen more as people, they're seen more as persons, which is a life worth living, being treated more like a person. There are groups also now working all around
0: the world to see if this kind of thinking can be applied to entire communities so that maybe people with dementia can live longer at home because they're staying integrated with their neighbors. Here's Mr. Hope.
1: You go into the bank or whatever the things that people need to do, can we make those environments as dementia-friendly as possible in ways that help people who may be having the experiences with their memory loss and so on to uh, to, to use those environments better and not to feel um, more disabled by the environment they're going into? And that can be true of literally how uh, 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 the colours on the walls that people use, the the shape and the the nature of the uh, reception areas. We know that we can change some of those things to make it more able for people with dementia to cope with those with those settings.
0: In the Netherlands, there's an entire village called Hoogave that's been designed with these principles in mind. It's a place where people with dementia can live and walk around freely knowing that anywhere they go will be safe, and that they'll never be far from a trained expert who can help them if they get into trouble. And now people are also looking to see if this kind of thinking can be applied to existing communities. Maybe the first program of this kind was called Dementia Friends, which started in Japan and has now moved to many countries including the UK and Canada. It offers a simple training course so that someone will know better how to interact with people with dementia that they might encounter in their day-to-day lives. This is part of a large-scale effort to find these better ways of care in Japan, which has the highest percentage of elderly residents of any country in the world. Here's Dr. Maruyama.
4: The, the will is certainly there um, at, at every level in Japan, uh, government, society, and even industry to identify creative solutions. It started with some very basic programs that I know have been copied by other countries, including the Dementia Friend Program, which is simply about creating a society that is more accepting and better educated about how to interact with people with dementia. Uh, because the Japanese people, on the whole, they're, uh, they're very self-sufficient. And so people who are in early stages of dementia will want to live in their communities and their homes the way most people want to live in their communities and homes. So one way of dealing with this better is to educate the community about how best to support these people. Here's Miss Chandaria.
10: So the Dementia Friends program is about increasing understanding in the general public about what dementia is. Uh, and that's through... Um, it's a 20-minute online um, kind of session or a 45-minute face-to-face information session and that's delivered by people anybody can do that they can train to become a dementia friends champion which means that they go on a day-long training course and then they can deliver these awareness sessions to people in their networks family and friends um, just so that 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 little bit of understanding is created
0: This effort is now being expanded to see if entire towns or even cities can be made dementia-friendly. The UK has followed Japan in a leadership role in these efforts. Here's Mr. Hope.
1: We've seen Japan leading the way with the dementia-friendly city idea, and there are cities around the world developing this program led by the World Health Organization to look at what does a city needs to do to become more dementia-friendly in its transport systems and uh, um, the way that uh, streets are laid out. Now, these are, um, these are big projects uh, we're learning as we go along, but it requires this kind of whole societal approach to
10: this and there's you know, a nationally recognised scheme which we run which communities register with us um, and there's a symbol which we issue to them which they can put up in local businesses and shops which identifies that they have had some dementia awareness training um, and that that person with dementia going into that store um, might feel more comfortable um, because some changes have been made. We've been lucky in that our original target was to have 20 places working towards becoming dementia friendly um, back in 2012 and now we have over 70 Uh, five communities across England that are are, are doing that.
0: There's another lesson in all of this, too. Maybe by changing our attitudes about people with Alzheimer's and how we choose to interact with them, we'll discover that they're capable of a lot more than we thought at the later stages of the disease. Here's Dr. Zeisel again.
11: I think that there is a major failing that we um, are facing in the whole education, in the whole policy, in the whole public communication area. And that is that the entire discourse is dominated by a lost narrative. What people can't do, as opposed to what are they able to do, what can they continue to do, and what are the skills and the abilities they have that never get lost.
0: The specifics of what someone with mid to late stage Alzheimer's disease is and is not capable of has to do with the fact that there are different kinds of memory involving different parts of the brain. And they're not all affected by this disease in the same way. Here's Dr. Maruyama again.
4: It's one thing we know about memory is that different kinds seem to be encoded different ways uh, in the brain. Um, So what we think about most is what we call declarative or episodic memory. This is a memory that we have almost conscious access to, if you will. You can say, I remember what I had for breakfast this morning, or I remember the conversation uh, that I had with a colleague yesterday. There are other kinds of memories, for instance, the memories of of how to do something. Um, Learning how to ride a bicycle. Uh, is probably a good example of that. Where your behavior certainly changes as you um, repeat it in a way that is based on what you did before, so there's learning to it. But you may not be able to say, this is how I learned to ride a bicycle.
0: It's that first kind of memory, the episodic or declarative kind, that's first and most severely affected by Alzheimer's disease. This covers everything from personal memories, that time Uncle Phil took you out on a fishing trip, and he fell off the boat, to your memory for facts and figures. What year was the American Revolution, the recipe for pound cake? This is because one of the first parts of the brain that dementia attacks is a part called the hippocampus, which is responsible for making these kinds of memories. The second kind, sometimes called procedural memory, hangs on a lot longer. A good way to understand the difference between these two kinds of memories is to look at the very famous case of a man known as H.M. whose hippocampus was removed in 1957 in an attempt to cure his debilitating case of epilepsy.
4: One of the stories about H.M. Uh, that, that has always been a, a good illustration for me um, is that if you brought him in one day to do a particular kind of motor task in this case the task was uh, tracing a shape in a mirror so if you've ever tried to do that, you know, you, you really get it wrong the first time you do it because it's a very different sensory motor feedback. But the more the, you practice, the better you get at doing that. So H.M. had a session of doing that. Within that session, he improved. The next day, he was uh, came back in to retest, um, and he said, I don't know how to do this. I've never done this before. He had no recollection that the day before he'd done this practice. But when he started doing it, he showed all of the practice effects from it. So his motor skill improved, but he couldn't remember and had no access to it. And it seems to be that that kind of memory may be a little deeper rooted or, for some reason, less susceptible uh, to this kind of interference or disruption.
0: Dr. Zeisel and others are looking at ways to take people with dementia who have lost memories that they created the first way, episodically, and reteach them the same things using procedural memory instead. Here he is to
11: explain. Everybody who works in a care home knows that if Mary goes and sits in a particular chair every day uh, at lunchtime, and they go and sit in that chair Before Mary gets there, Mary will come and say, you're in my chair. Mary has learned it's their chair. She didn't know it was her chair before she moved in. So even with dementia, somebody will say, that's my chair, because they've learned it. So you can look at people with these cognitive issues and say procedural learning is something they have forever. It's a strength. Why should we be focusing on episodic? Let's not. Let's focus on procedural. And there's a technique called spaced
0: retrieval, or sometimes procedural interval learning, whereby you can teach people all kinds of things using the procedural memory parts of their brains. Here's how it works.
11: So if I say my name is John, that the answer is John, and I say to you, what's my name? You're going to say John. So the next time I say the answer is John, and I wait about five seconds, and then I say what's my name, and you say John, I get to a point. By extending the interval from 5 seconds to 10 seconds to a minute, where you actually say, I say, my name is John. The answer is John. A minute later, I ask you what my name is. You say, I don't know. Right? I go back to 30 seconds, and I try it again. And you remember it. And I keep doing it at 30 seconds until you get to a minute. You remember it for a minute. You then do the same thing and wait a two-minute interval until you're up at five, six, seven minutes, in which case the person has remembered it forever. It's embedded in their brain. They can learn the names of their grandchildren again, so that when the grandchild comes, they don't, um, they don't go, who are you? They go, hi, Billy. And then Billy has a relationship to them. We can use these, these neurological mechanisms as vehicles for making a positive difference in their lives.
0: This is an incredibly tedious process, so it will never replace anything like all of the memories someone has lost. But it can be used to restore some remarkably sophisticated things, like an appreciation of art, as Dr. Zeisel does, with a museum program specifically designed for people with Alzheimer's disease.
11: What we do is we determine through a research procedure which paintings, which artworks resonate with people with dementia, we then organize the tour so that we go from those artworks to another and have a particular form of question and answer about what do you... We don't say, do you know the painter? Do you, have you seen this before? We just say, what do you think about this? What's the story here? What's the emotion that's being expressed, etc. By the time people come back to that museum tour five times, they go, oh, I know that painting. I know it well. They've learned it procedurally. What techniques like this
0: do, more than anything, is give people hope. Maybe not that their loved one will be who they were ten years ago, but that their lives in the middle stages of neurodegenerative disease can be rich and rewarding and worth living. And that kind of hope is contagious. It breeds inspiration.
11: If we approach an ambiguous situation, and dementia is an ambiguous situation, with despair, oh, nothing can be done, I can't do anything about it, it's a downward slope from here. We approach that situation with fear, and we get angry. If we approach the exact same situation with hope, we approach that situation with curiosity, and we become creative.
0: Over the course of these past four episodes, we've laid out what might seem like a pretty bleak picture— a deadly and grueling disease affecting millions of people that has no cure, very little in the way of effective treatments, and inadequate infrastructure to care for the people suffering from it. But the truth is, there are actually a lot of reasons to be hopeful. There are brilliant people working on innovative solutions to every aspect of the disease, as well as the not insignificant issue of how to pay for them. And many in the field are a lot more optimistic than you might think the future of Alzheimer's disease. Next time on the New York Academy of Sciences podcast. Thanks so much for listening to the New York Academy of Sciences podcast. This episode was presented by the Academy's Alzheimer's disease and dementia initiative and made possible by the generous support of the Dana Foundation. It was produced by your host, David Hoffman. Scientific oversight by Dr. Cynthia Duggan. Special thanks to the experts who appeared in this episode. Phil Hope of Improving Care, Robin Desell of the Hebrew Home at Riverdale, Ruth Drew of the Alzheimer's Association, Dr. Tetsuyuki Maruyama of Takeda Pharmaceuticals, Dr. Jason Karlowish of the University of Pennsylvania, Dr. Dina Davis of Lehigh University, Greg Johnson of Emblem Health, Dr. Luke Troyan of Johnson & Johnson, Llewellyn Barkin of the Alzheimer's Association of New York City, Karishma Chandaria of the Alzheimer's Society, and Dr. John Zeisel of Hearthstone Alzheimer Care. For information about the New York Academy of Sciences Alzheimer's Disease and Dementia Initiative, including upcoming events, publications, and challenge grants, please visit www.nyas.org slash whatwedo slash Alzheimer's.